Stacy Sims from Diabetes Connections. This episode is subtitled, Get Paid to Podcast. It's episode 117 on Alternative Health Tools Podcast, where together we discover and share new alternative health tools and resources from alternative healthcare practitioners and experts. Stacey Sims is a writer, podcaster, speaker, and diabetes mom. Her podcast show, Diabetes Connections, first episode was launched in May 2015. Today, Stacey, along with co-hosts John Beethan, that's me, and Kim Shea, cover Stacey's path, along with everything else in between, that took Stacey from diabetes mom to being a successfully sponsored podcaster for the last five years. Be sure to visit the program notes to find out about her upcoming webinar, Get Paid to Podcast. Welcome to the show, Stacy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yep. Yeah, there's, it's great to meet you. There's three of us. Well, it'll be a fun conversation then. I know. My name is John Beethan, producer basically, and then Kim Shea is our co-host here in Carlsbad too. And we are honored to have Stacy Sims, who if I have it right, I met you last week at a Libsyn holiday party. Is that right? Yeah, that was so much fun. I mean, you know, it's not like it's supposed to be with holiday parties, but we did our best. I thought that was a great event. Yeah, it was good. It was really, really good. So you caught my attention because I have listened to your podcast for a very long time. But I know Kim has several questions to ask, I'm sure. But let's start with how you got started because pre-show we were rolling and you had (laughs) said that you had some experience in radio, TV and that sort of thing. Let's find out where you're from. Got it. Sure thing. So I grew up just outside of New York City. And that is relevant for radio because I was so lucky to be growing up during the time when Howard Stern was new and Don Imus was on the radio in the morning. And that's the kind of stuff that we like to listen to. So I grew up listening to an awful lot of talking mm-hmm. um, and interesting, fun talking in New York City and that area radio. And I knew I wanted to go into some kind of media very early on. I wanted to be a TV reporter. But like many people in radio and in podcasting, I made up my own shows. Thank goodness there's no (laughs) back then, right? But I had my little cassette recorder with probably the little dictaphone microphone or whatever they sold at Caldor back then. And, you know, I would make commercials and do terrible shows. And I always wanted to be in broadcasting. Was lucky enough to go to college for it, start working in radio. I got a part-time job at WSYR in Syracuse, which is the news talk station there. And then after college, I worked in local TV news in upstate New York. Finally, I got really tired of the snow and getting up in the middle of the night to be a morning TV anchor. So I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I live now. Did a stint in local TV here with almost normal hours. So I was a regular on the 6 o'clock news here. It was lovely. But I got sucked back into radio and I wound up doing mornings at WBT, the news talk down here for 10 years. And after that, I started podcasting. Nice. What year did you start? Uh, I started podcasting in 2015. That's what I thought. Yeah, Yeah, I, I thought about starting earlier. I was actually intimidated by the technology, which is funny to look back on now, but it really held me back for a while because I came from a TV background. This is showing my age a bit 
where we didn't have multimedia journalists like we have now, where everybody did their own stuff. I had a cameraman, I had a producer, I had a union. So I didn't press a lot of buttons mm. and I was really nervous about it, but it worked out okay. Yeah, you've done well. <laughs> I love it. You know, I, I've been listening to podcasts probably since around the time you started when you had to plug your device into the computer oh, and painful. The, the show. And But I loved listening to podcasts and I'm, I really always wanted to do one. So I was happy to, to try. The name of the show is DiabetesConnections.com, right? <laughs> she has new episodes every Tuesday. Yes, thank you. You're yeah. Welcome. So... I just wanted to say I just finished listening to The Mission Hasn't Changed at All. Ah. Wow. So talking about diabetes and COVID-19 and stuff like that. I wanted to cover that a little bit today. But at this time, I'd like to actually ask him to kind of run away with it for a while. (laughs) I do want to sing your praises here because your website is amazing and you've got a lot of experience on here. Clearly, you are like the person that seems like the average everyday person who knows a lot about diabetes and specifically type 1 diabetes because your son was diagnosed before he was two. Is that right? Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that, you know, that you know a lot about diabetes. When my son was diagnosed back in 2006, right before he was two, I thought I knew about diabetes because I was a health reporter. That's what I did. I was a health reporter starting in my days back in Syracuse. And I covered a lot of stories looking back pretty shallowly, as local news tends to do. And then you get very much educated about a a few things. So when I was faced with my son having type 1, I kept saying to myself, like, okay, type 1, type 2, gestational, like I've heard these terms, but what do they mean? And we knew very little, and it was a very scary time. But we got up to speed pretty quickly. And I found blogs. You know, remember, this is 2006. So I found a lot of blogs and a lot of ways to connect that way. And at my radio station, as I said, it was news talk. So we didn't do a lot of personal stuff. It wasn't a wacky morning show where, you know, what'd you do this weekend? Or how's your husband? Whoa, what a pain or whatever. It was news weather traffic every 10 minutes on the 10s. So we didn't talk a lot about our personal life, but my listeners wanted to know what was going on. So I started a blog to explain what type one, which used to be called juvenile diabetes, what it was all about. And gradually that became more and more of what I wanted to do. And Diabetes Connections is actually a presentation that I started before the podcast. I go and speak at conferences and things. And that was one about how to find people in your community because, you know, we'll see how in depth you all want to get. But type 1 diabetes is in a child or an adult is a 24-7 thing. And you only see your doctor a couple of times a year. So, boy, do you need your in-person connections and community. How did you know your son had diabetes? Classic signs and a little bit of luck. So the classic signs of type 1 diabetes are um, in Australia and in the UK, they call them the four T's, which I think is super clever. So I have stolen and it is toilet, thirst, tired, thinner. Toilet, you have to go to the bathroom, excessive urination. Your body's trying to, to get rid of the excess sugar that it has built up. Thirst, you're super thirsty. So you're trying to drink. It's the other side of the urination. Super tired, your body is exhausted. It's working so hard and thinner, you will lose weight generally without trying. So what's happening is with all types of diabetes, it's a blood glucose imbalance. There's too much sugar in the body. With type 1 diabetes, it's an autoimmune disease. Something has happened to make the body attack itself. So it's basically attacked and ruined the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. When you don't have insulin, you can't break down the sugar in the food you eat and the sugar circulates in your body. And it's a very, very dangerous situation. In fact, it's deadly 
quickly with type 1 diabetes. So I watched my little boy go through, you know, he was happy, healthy kid. And then as the weeks went on, he was crankier. He was having tantrums. He was exhausted. He was peeing all the time and drinking all the time. And finally, I said to my husband, the little bit that I know, the little bit that I know is that this looks like type 1. So we called our pediatrician and she, interestingly, she said, he's too young. I've never seen anybody under the age of two. Bring him in so we can rule it out. And of course, we brought him in and ruled it in. And he was the first kid in this enormous pediatric practice that was younger than two, which come to find out is not all that rare. And in fact, anecdotally, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a researcher or a statistician. Anecdotally, more children are being diagnosed younger with type 1 diabetes. So that practice has seen lots of kids under the age of two in the last 14 years. Yeah, I'm sorry, but it it begs the question, why do you think that is? You know, I don't know. I think it's all autoimmune diseases have increased. I mean, part of the thinking, there's a lot of thinking to that. Part of it is before 100 years ago, people with type 1 diabetes didn't survive. Mm. Insulin was discovered as a treatment in 1921. Mm. So that's not all that long ago. Mm -hmm. So when you think about it, many cases of type 1 are not thought to be genetic. There's a genetic propensity, but not everybody in my family certainly is going to have type 1 now. And he's the only kid in our immediate family. It's not common in my family. We do have one cousin now who has it, but it's they're it. But the thinking is, okay, so people are surviving with type 1. So they're having children. So that has gone up. But it's also, it's got to be environmental. Exactly. It's got to be other things we're doing, right? It's yeah. autoimmune and all autoimmune diseases are on the rise. Obsessed yeah. food, bad water, chemicals in the environment. That's what I've seen anyway. Yeah. yeah. And there's that whole hygiene hypothesis, right? We're too clean. So our bodies don't know how to fight off germs. They get confused. Well, I, I will state for the record since COVID, I, I don't shower but once every two or three days now. <laughs> you're good. You're golden. I don't have to. I'm in front of a camera. I think a lot of us are going yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that must have been pretty scary. And I know I've got a friend who's got a son who's, I think he's about 14 now, and he's been discovered to have diabetes. And she was just marveling at, I think it's Dexcom, which I noticed is on your website. And I think they're located here in San Diego County. But yeah. Yeah, she was saying how amazing it was because she was home, he was away on a sleepover, and she got a notice on her phone saying his blood sugar is dropping. And so she got in the car, went over there right away and did what she needed to do, which is just amazing, the technology now. And my son worked at a research clinic that did clinical research trials for diabetes for two years. And he was always telling me what the latest technology was. And it's just amazing now that there is so much that can help people with diabetes to manage this illness because it's a lot of work. And especially I imagine as the mother, it's a lot of work. So you've seen a lot of changes. I, imagine. I have. I have. And yes, thank you. Dexcom is a proud sponsor of Diabetes Connections and has been for a couple of years. They really are. And they're a great company. We love them and we do use their stuff. But when Benny was diagnosed, when my son was diagnosed, they didn't have these continuous glucose monitors, as they're called. So we were doing finger sticks like you do to check blood glucose. Most people are very familiar with that. And with a two-year-old, you don't know where he's going up, down, sideways. So we were doing 10 pokes a day, probably, just to figure out where he was. And he was fine with that right off the bat. I have to say he was a little nervous with that. He didn't like the shots. That was a nightmare. But the finger pokes weren't so bad. I think he figured out quickly he could freak people out, you know, and show here's my blood, blah, or wipe them on the floor and make a mess and make everybody crazy. So two-year-olds kind of likes that. But when he was nine, 
we got a Dexcom continuous glucose monitor, which as you listen, if you're not familiar with, it's really incredible. And there are a couple of CGMs on the market, but they work like this. You insert it. There is an automatic inserter. So you basically just press a button. But what happens is a needle goes under your skin and comes right back out like a super quick shot. And it leaves behind a wire. And that wire measures the interstitial fluid in your skin, in that layer under your skin. I shouldn't say in your skin, right underneath. And it's not exactly a match for blood glucose because it's measuring something else. But it's very, very close. And the latest Dexcom is close enough that the FDA approved it to dose insulin. So my son maybe does a finger stick. I don't know. I'll be generous and say every two weeks. Oh, wow. What a change. You know, he's also, it's a huge change. He's also 16. So he's not, you know, right now, he's not the world's best diabetic. He's like the world's okayest diabetic (laughs) at 16, which I'm fine with. He's great. Yeah. But the Dexcom, what's amazing about it, so he's got the sensor in his arm or his abdomen or wherever he wears it. And it beams the signal via Bluetooth to his phone. And then his phone, I can be anywhere in the world. The magic of Wi-Fi, I can see his blood glucose. Now, what's interesting is when he was younger, it was a piece of cake. Like, I'm just going to watch you. But as the kids get older, and think about a spouse. Adults have type 1. A lot of people use this. Even people with type 2 use this now. You have to have these conversations. When am I going to call you? When am I going to go to the sleepover? When? So it's, it's really created some really interesting ethical and conversational and parenting conversations in our community. But the safety and the, the feeling of, I don't know, peace of knowing that if his blood sugar is going to drop low or going to drop high, I get this alarm on my phone. It's pretty amazing. That is, it's a miracle. I think it's great. It's nice to be able to experience all that and have some help because you're doing yeah. it as a parent. And, and if you get a chance to so all of our listeners, go on to Stacy's website and we'll have her information here in the show notes. But he is a good looking, healthy boy. He really is. He looks great. You know, you might picture some sickly kid, but he looks wonderful and he looks oh, happy and healthy and you've been doing a good job. So I was on Twitter just before we started recording and a mom posted my child. They're, they're in the ER. My child was just diagnosed with type 1. What do I do? What kind of advice do you all have? And I always tell new parents, none of the fears I had in that hospital room have come true. And my fears mm-hmm. weren't for what a pain diabetes is. <laughs> you know, your fears of your kid are these big picture fears. And I say, my kid is almost 16, happy, healthy, Knock on wood, anywhere I can knock. I almost, I almost hate saying this, but happy, healthy, and a big goofball. He's a really independent kid. He's a happy kid. Diabetes definitely can slow you down. It's a lot of work, but he plays every sport he wants to. He's gone on those sleepovers. He's gone to camp. He's gone on trips. And it's funny that you said that, Kim, because when I tell people I do a diabetes podcast or I talk about it, they're like, oh, it's so good that you do that. How nice for you. Like, oh, it's a charity thing. And I guess in a way it's nice, but I'm pretty selfishly started it because I love information. I love finding out new stuff. I love talking to people. And this is something I'm passionate about. I appreciate you saying that about him. We're, we're pretty fortunate. He's, and he's an easygoing kid, which I think helps too. I just wanted to ask a question. Are you seeing any kind of trends in terms of the numbers of, numbers of people, anything at all related to diabetes? I really haven't had my eye on it for probably the last 10 years. Sure. Um, I don't keep up with kind of exact statistics, mm-hmm. but I will tell you type two is certainly has been growing for years and years, which uh, used to be called adult onset. 
And many people listening, you may already be saying, well, people eat too much and they're fat. And it's not all about that. There's a huge genetic component to type two. And I think it's actually just as much environmental as type one. So we're still learning more about that. But there, the numbers are growing and the numbers of people with type one are growing as well. They're really trying to figure out why, as we mentioned with autoimmune, what's interesting this year with COVID is that quite often it used to be thought that a, a virus might cause type one. Right, because or any autoimmune, because as I said earlier, it tricks your body into attacking the wrong thing. Now they're thinking more that viruses may just uncover because they they bring these symptoms out more acutely. And we've heard many cases in the last year. This is just anecdotal of families who have kids who are very sick, but the family is afraid to go to the ER. They're afraid to go to the clinic because of COVID. So a type one diagnosis that might have been caught a little bit sooner when the child was in less danger progresses to the point where they're they're in an awful lot of danger. Or, and again, there's a couple of U.S. studies that have just started on this uh, to see if this is is really happening, if COVID is actually doing something to cause more cases of diabetes. And I don't think that'll be known for a few years. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, honestly, John, the biggest trend in diabetes across the board is, unfortunately, people in this country not being able to afford their insulin. That Mm -hmm. is the number one issue in this community right now. It's people, one in four people in America who have diabetes ration their insulin. Mm. And is that, pre, is that pre-COVID situation? Yes, yes, that's pre-COVID. The price of insulin has gone up steadily for the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. Many, many, many people have great insurance, don't pay much. I was in this situation for a while. I had no idea and I didn't think it was all that real because we have insurance and we just pay our monthly and it's not even a lot. And then I was one vial short and they said that'll be $300. <laughs> I said, what? Yeah, you've reached your limit. And I thought, oh my gosh, what if we had to pay this all the time for one vial of insulin, which a teenage boy isn't going to last you long at all. And that really opened my eyes and I started having more people on the show to talk about it and to get educated about it. And that has just got to change. It's unconscionable. Yeah, I know my son in the research clinic, they would see people who would come in. A lot of them were participating in the research trials because they didn't have a lot of money to begin with and you're compensated to be in a research trial. But I know that the PAs would try to talk to them and counsel them and say, okay, here's what we can do now because I know you can't afford to do everything. Here's the best you could possibly do. And then when you get more money, then you can move up and have more medications available to you. What a shame. It doesn't make any sense. We could do a whole hour on that, but I would encourage people who are interested that great hashtag is insulin for all and four is the number four. So insulin for all. And that will kind of open your eyes to some different ways of thinking, different ways of looking at this. But insulin is not a drug. Insulin is a hormone. And only three companies make it. There's no generic. It's a very different medication, I mean, it is a hormone, I'm calling it a medication, but it's a very different substance than your blood pressure medication or things like that. And it's handled very differently in this country because of the patents and the special treatment for these companies. It's very strange. I had um, Eli Lilly on early in the pandemic and they were talking about their affordability program. They all have coupons. I've actually taken advantage recently of the Lilly coupon because our insurance company switched us to a different type of insulin. And I know enough to know that I can use these coupons to get the insulin that I really want. It took me two weeks and several calls to doctors and pharmacies. And I had to call Lily, but we worked it out. Luckily, I have the time and the knowledge to do that. And most people don't. But I asked them back in March. They were touting the coupons. And I said to them, 
why not be a hero and just drop the price right now? History remembers bold companies. This is a pandemic. If you dropped the list price of your insulin to $35 a month or even $35 a vial, you'd be an incredibly successful company. People would love that. And they kind of hemmed and hawed. Of course, nothing came of it, but I'm really glad I got to ask. That's the cool. Is that the coolest thing about podcasting? You get to, yes. you know, your passion, you were so, it means so much to me. And I was able to ask the right person that question. Yeah. I swear to God, I do not know really. I'm not a cocaine user. I don't know the market, <laughs> but it seems to me that insulin is about as expensive as cocaine. Is it? I don't know. I believe it. I believe it is much more expensive. I believe it is. Well, I shouldn't talk. I don't know anything about that, but I know it is. The reason I said that is because I believe it is the second or third most expensive liquid in the world. Mm. Wow. Don't ask me. The other ones are like some kind of anti-venom, maybe like liquid diamonds. I don't remember. I'd have to look it up, but it is in the top most expensive liquids in the world. So So for those people listening, that's your call to action right there. Let us know what the first and second (laughs) most expensive liquid in the world is. Right. And if you know the price of cocaine, we don't know you. you don't yeah, we don't, we don't want to hear from you, please. <laughs> we don't know you. <laughs> That's funny. Well, so you have a book, The World's Worst Diabetic Mom. What is that about? Why do you say that? Your son looks like you're the opposite. Oh, yes. I'm sure he'd tell you I'm the greatest. Yeah. The World's Worst Diabetes Mom came about because I wrote a cookbook for charity many years ago. It was all local restaurants. It's called I Can't Cook, But I Know Someone Who Can. And it was just for fun. I I didn't put any recipes in, but I got them from other places. And I raised money for JDRF, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And the group that put that together, I self-published, but I published with a a group that does this, a wonderful company called Spark Publications. I'll give them a plug here in Charlotte. If you're looking to be an indie publisher, look them up. And they've been after me for a long time to publish another book. And they, why don't you put your blogs together? I blogged for many years. I thought, you know, I'm sure it would be an easy book, but it wouldn't be a book I want to read. Right. There's a lot of people, they put their blogs together and whatever. And I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I had book. I've got to write something about parenting and and give some advice. And I'm a little bit different in the diabetes parenting world because I do give my son so much independence because I decided a long time ago that even though I would worry about him and I would, you know, be kind of terrified. You know, you mentioned the following on the phone. A lot of people will let the school nurse follow or other school personnel, or the grandparents have to see everything. And we decided that we would never let anybody follow him at school. He didn't need it. He, he didn't need it to be followed by 27 people. We're a little bit of out, outliers in a few ways. So I was having a discussion on Facebook, as one is wont to do. I'm in a lot of parenting Facebook groups, fewer now because I have less time and because of things like I'm about to tell you. And I had a conversation that was going not so well with a gentleman who took offense with how I was doing my parenting. And I don't remember. It was about some independence thing. I let him go. I let my son go to regular summer camp for a month every summer, which is very unusual in the diabetes world. And he basically said, you're going to kill your kid. He was very nasty. And I said, I guess I'm the world's worst diabetes mom. And I slammed the computer down. And and then I went, oh my gosh, that's the book. That's the book. I'm going to talk about all the mistakes that we have made And why you should not be afraid of mistakes, why you should make all the mistakes, because that's how I parent anyway. I parent, I was about to say I'm a terrible parent. I'm a great parent. But you know how it goes. We're supposed to be perfect. I don't know, Kim, when this happened. But moms today are supposed to work, be home, exercise, make gourmet meals, craft up the yin-yang, 
have beautiful homes. We're supposed to do everything and do it perfectly. And you know, never sleep, but sleep because it's very important, right? Be a size two, but I'm going to eat a hamburger and have a beer because that's fun. It's all these contradictions. And I felt like in the diabetes world, that was happening as well, especially with the technology you mentioned, because now that we can see everything, which is great and wonderful, and I love it, I don't want to go back. But now that we can see it, we can compete, we can measure it, we can make other people feel bad about it, we can make ourselves feel bad about it. So if things aren't perfect, we're seeing it on our phones, every single number. And if I let my son play that soccer game, maybe his blood sugar will go out of range. If I let him spend time at his friend's house, maybe his blood sugar will go out of range and I won't be perfect. And I think that's stopping people. So I wrote the book as a humorous look at it, but also it's got a lot of advice. I had a lot of diabetes educators, endocrinologists look at things. So it's not medical advice per se, but there's nothing in there that your endocrinologist wouldn't tell you. And I also have, at the end of every chapter, I have a, hey, ask your doctor about this. It's like a list of questions. Because how do you know what to ask if you don't know what to ask? Well, I admire that. So you're trying to let your son have a life. Well, most of these parents are. I mean, I don't really think that they're thinking that they're helicopter parents and limiting their kids. I don't think anybody thinks that way. But when you step back and look at it, it's like, oh, I really, I could try that and maybe I'll mess up, but he's going to be okay. That's a fine line. I think a lot of parents with kids who are ill walk, yeah. trying to decide how much do I do? How much do I stand back and give them freedom? And you worry, but it sounds like you're, you're just trying to let him have a life. Yeah. While keeping an eye on him. And you know a lot about it, probably more than many parents do. And you mentioned on your website that you say mistakes and mishaps can be a parent's secret superpower. Is this what you mean as things that you've learned along the way? Absolutely. Because the first 30 days that we were home with my toddler with type one, I made so many mistakes, but that's how we learned. And I'll be specific. I stabbed myself with needles. You know, I got insulin in my mouth and I was like, oh my God, am I going to die? We misdosed him. We made mistakes. And, and every chapter of the book starts out with a mistake. You know, we'd walk into a restaurant and you hear like, beep, 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 no insulin in his pump, right? Or we'd forget stuff. The very first time we used an insulin pump, the way it connects to the body is very similar to the continuous glucose monitor I described earlier. It's like getting a shot and then it leaves this little cannula under the skin. We messed that up and we didn't know it for hours. So his blood sugar was high. He wasn't getting the insulin he needed. I mean, we've made mistakes along the way, but we've always learned from them. And I think once you acknowledge that you can make mistakes, it makes you braver. And then when you learn from it, it makes you smarter and better. So that's what I mean by it becomes your secret superpower. You get more confident. That's great. That's great. It's nice you're sharing that with everybody too, because it's probably a little bit reassuring too, if you're new to this and you think I'm going to kill my child if I don't do this right. And it <laughs> sounds like there's a little room for error, a little bit of margin for error there. There's a reason second children, regardless of diabetes, are generally a little bit more easygoing. Yeah. Right. Because, or at least parenting the second child, you're more easygoing because it's, you're going to mess it up, but they're going to be okay. Yeah. I think that's great that you offer this forum. And, and you Thank talked you. to all kinds of people or success stories. Who, who are some of your favorite people that you've talked to? <sighs> you know, it's funny. I, the show is a real mix of regular people living with type one who just have fun stories to tell to athletes and celebrities 
And then we talked to the people like the people at Eli Lilly and the technology. So at the beginning, I love talking to the more famous people, right? I talked to Victor Garber is an actor who lives with type one. He's been in everything. I'm trying to think of the most recent thing people might know him from. I don't know. He was an alias. He's been around forever. He was in the last season of Schitt's Creek. He, you know, he popped up as the soap opera star that Moira smacked. So he's been around. But I was very nervous to talk to him because I love I love him. Mark Andrews is an NFL player who lives with type one. I've spoken to him. And Brick Bassinger is an actress. She's on the CW. She's star girl. She lives with type one. So it's fun. You know, it's a small community. So I can usually find the people like that and they'll come on. They're fun. But over the years, I really enjoy talking to the technology companies because I've gotten more and more um interest from my audience. Podcasting audience is a different kind of audience, right? They're smart, they're savvy, they want to know the tech. So in the diabetes community, there's a huge portion of people who are DIYers and they'll take an insulin pump and pack it or connect it. You know, in between 2013 and 2017, 2018, there was a huge movement. And the hashtag for that is we are not waiting. Huge movement to bring things to market that were possible, but that weren't being commercialized, that weren't FDA approved. And it was kind of a joke because I wouldn't use any of them on my son because they weren't FDA approved. And I knew we'd mess it up and it would go out in the middle of the night and I wouldn't have anybody to call. But there are thousands of people doing this. They did an amazing job and they pushed the commercially available technology forward faster. I mean, there's been articles in the Wall Street Journal and, and mainstream you can find pretty easily. But I love talking to those people. And that became a passion. In fact, in 2021, I'm going to be talking to more, I'm doing a push on more technology because we lost this year with COVID. A lot of clinical trials got pushed back and a lot of the technology got delayed. So things that should have been out this year in 20, excuse me, things that should have been out in 2020 are coming out in 2021. So there's a lot to talk about that way. It's hard. It's like, you know, what are your favorite episodes? I guess the real ones, though, are when I get to talk to my son. I've interviewed him a couple of times, and that's been really fun. And for 10 years of diabetes, I interviewed my whole family. And my daughter, who is fantastic, she's three years older than Benny. She is not a limelight kind of kid. I don't know where she came from. She's very introverted. (laughs) (laughs) Poor thing. But she spoke to me for that show, and that was really special to me because it's not easy being a sibling of a kid with a chronic condition who gets so much attention. And and we really talked about some cool stuff. It was a nice, it was a nice show. So that's probably my very favorite is our 10 years with type one. I like what you're doing there because you're, you're not just dealing with the disease, but you're also dealing with the whole family and the social aspects of it within your family and the relationships. So you're really helping to educate your listeners about a lot of different facets of living with this disease. And it's cool that you're able to talk to so many of the technical companies and the pharmaceutical companies, because then you can bring that information that somebody else might not be able to easily access. And it's all right there. Yeah. And you're breaking it down, making sure everybody can understand it. That's great. It's fun. And I get to I say, hey, I'm talking to this pump company or I'm talking to this group. What are your questions? I have a Facebook group for the podcast. So they get to send me the questions and I get to ask what they want to know, because many of them will have different questions. You know, I am a mom of a 16 year old kid with type one. Many people in my group are over the age of 65 living with type one. They have Medicare questions. They have totally different questions. They have reimbursable stuff that I wouldn't even think of. There are people who are wondering, will this device talk to me because I have low vision, right? Stuff that I would never think about. So it really keeps me on my toes. And I think it helps me serve the community a lot better when I involve my listeners. You've got a whole tribe. That's great. 
Oh, so lucky. I'm so lucky because then I can also ask them, as I did recently, hey, my endocrinologist recommended this new type of insulin for Benny. What do you think? Has anybody used it? Does it work in this insulin pump? What do you think of this? Blah, 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 blah. And so we have conversations that have helped me too. Nice. I actually want to ask a question I often ask people. Not in the context of diabetes or anything else, but I always like to find out, can you give me a defining moment in your life where everything changed? Oh, my goodness. A defining moment where everything changed. Yes, I can. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk about Benny's diabetes because obviously that changed everything personally. But here's where my professional life changed. I was working in Charlotte. I was a TV fill-in anchor and reporter at WBTV, which is the CBS affiliate here in town. And that's what I came to town to do. I was, as I said, done with mornings, done with snow, get me out of Syracuse, bring me here. And the news director who hired me said, the next time there's an anchor opening, you're going to get it. And I had, in fact, turned down a couple of other jobs in smaller cities as a main anchor to come be a reporter in Charlotte with the promise that I would be a main anchor. Well, of course, she left town (laughs) a few months later. And new management came in and I had nothing in writing with that, right? So I had a contract, but it didn't say, hey, you're going to be the next anchor. And so I was kind of floundering under that management. It was fine, but it wasn't the same. Now, lucky for me, WBTV is in the same building as two radio stations. I think there's three radio stations in that building now. And I was walking down the hall and the afternoon funny guy host said, hey, health girl, what do you know about horny goat weed? And I said, give me five minutes. And I ran down the hall and I, thank goodness we had the World Wide Web. Phew, back then, I think this was 1999, maybe 2000. Yeah, it must have been, it must have been um, 2000. And, you know, was able to get some information. And I ran back and he said, let's talk about it. So Matt and Ramona, which is the afternoon show, made me a regular. I'd go once a week and talk about health news. And we just had a lot of fun. And we talk about afternoon radio funny health news, right? It wasn't serious stuff. It was what's horny goat weed or let's talk about this, you know, what's the lowest cal drink you can have at your holiday party if you're looking to shed the weight, stuff like that. But then one day I ate a bug. They had a chocolate covered bunch of bugs that somebody brought in. I don't even remember what this was all about, but you radio people know what I'm talking about, right? This nonsense happens all the time and they wouldn't eat it. And it was delicious and it's high in protein. I was like, I'll do it, fine. And the general manager came down after it. He said, I had to see who this person was. I've heard you, but I've never met you. Hi, what's your story? So we got to talking for a little while. And he said, hey, I know what's going to happen because TV people come and go all the time. Talk to me before you leave town. So I went, wow. Hmm, hmm. I went home. I talked to my husband. And he said, go to his office tomorrow and tell him, if you want to work with him, that's a guy who's telling you, I want to work with you. So I said, okay. So I knocked on his door the next day and I said, hey, I'm not leaving town yet, but if you're serious, that's cool. Like, I want to work with you. And he said, okay, great. I'll be in touch. He offered me the morning show about two months later. Oh, my God. And that was, it was perfect. It was perfect timing for me because I was about, I was going to leave town. I was going to, my contract was going to be up. So it was a little bit of a longer story than that. But that's in a nutshell how I got to WBT Radio, which is this amazing heritage radio station. It's, I think in 2022, it'll be 100 years old. It's a very cool place to be a part of. And I was lucky enough to be there for 10 years. So that's the moment my life changed when I ate the bug. WLNK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very funny. It was a cool story. 
Yeah. And I wound up getting up again. I said I was done with mornings. I got up at two 30 in the morning for another 10 years. I should be doing oh. that. I, I've been getting it up at two, two thirty, three o'clock. Just for fun. Because I'm done. <laughs> Obviously I crashed pretty early. <laughs> I never got used to it. My co-host was amazing. I think he went to bed at seven or seven thirty every night. And he was always, he was always fine. But I was never fine. I never got used to it. I also had two small children. Um, and my husband was running, owning and running a restaurant for those years. So we were like ships in the night, never seeing each other. But I couldn't do it. And that's why I left because I couldn't function on that little sleep. And my daughter was in middle school and I was missing too much. And I was, this is not worth it. So I left. And then that's when I started my podcast because radio people can't really stop talking to things. And I was walking around my neighborhood talking back to my iPod, listening to podcasts back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were talking about your introverted daughter. Doesn't sound like you're real introverted, are you? No, I, I don't know where she came from. She's the best. But no, I'm one of those people. That's like great. I love many it. people I've worked with in radio. It's just, it's a special kind of weird, but we make it work. <laughs> Kim, do you have some more? Yeah, I want to ask you about the diabetes game show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, again, I'm a frustrated talk show host and have had a lot of fun over the years. And I love, love game shows. So, you know, it's it goes back to the whole thing with diabetes. Oh, I'm sorry. What a serious show. I feel bad for everybody. There's so much humor in the community and there's so many great people. So a few years ago for a fundraiser, I did a very short parody of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. I just did trivia. I might have done a limerick or two. It was very short. But I thought, wow, this was fun. So for my very first live podcast taping, I did a full Wait, Wait, Don't Poke Me, the diabetes game show, at a conference in front of a you know big room. And it was so nerve-wracking because it really is just me. I have a wonderful editor who helps me out. But, you know, on the road shows and things like that, I'm my own producer, I'm my own host, I'm my own gaffer, everything. And luckily, I got some wonderful people in the diabetes community to be panelists, and we had a blast. And the next year, I did it again, and they gave me a huge room. I mean, it was crazy. I had a big crowd. This summer, I was going to do it again virtually because all the conferences I go to, of course, are virtual. But I thought Zoom looks like Hollywood Squares. So wouldn't it be fun to do Hollywood Squares instead? And it was a great idea. I had no idea how much work it was going to be because you need nine people for that. Oh, my God. Talk about writing your brain, writing checks that you can't cash or whatever the saying is. I had nine people in six time zones from all over the world because I decided, let's go big if we're going to do this. I had people from Australia and Israel and the UK and all over the east and west coast of the US. And it actually worked. That was a blast. So we did that. And then I did Wait, Wait, Don't Poke Me again just recently for a winter conference. And I just love it. I write it all. I have wonderful panelists who take part, but they just show up and, and read. And thank goodness they do. I would love to do that. I'm available for corporate outings. I'm happy to tailor my wait waits for you. <laughs> but it really is a lot of fun. I'm kidding, but not really. I would love to do that more often. <laughs> So what's in store for you for 2021? Aha. Well, on the podcast on Diabetes Connections, I'm so lucky because we never run out of things to talk about. So I am continuing the weekly show, starting with a very heavy emphasis on technology. I've already got many interviews in Banked that I try to get too far ahead because the news gets stale. But I'm about three to four weeks ahead at any one time. And because 
COVID kind of backed things up in terms of technology. I know what is expected. I know what's been submitted to the FDA or what's expected to be submitted. So I've got those companies coming up along with um, something I'm adding this year, which I'm taking some of my, I have 340 episodes. So I'm taking my first year or two of episodes and probably repackaging them a little bit and releasing them in what I call a classic format because a lot of my listeners haven't gone back and listened to them. So I'm going to give them new context and put them in. And separate from the podcast, I'm probably working on a second book because I want to have community stories. A lot of people tell me they're world's worst stories. And I want to put them into a book. But what I'm, I'm really excited about separate from diabetes is I have spent the last couple of years going to podcast conferences and talking to people about podcasting and realizing that I have a sponsored show. I've sold my show since six months in and I do it all myself. And I've been very fortunate to be successful. I've never asked my listeners for money. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But my listeners, if they're going to give money, they need to give it to a better place than me. There's so many needs in the diabetes community. I've always pledged to not ask my listeners for any money. I wouldn't do Patreon. Again, it's fine for most podcasters. It doesn't suit my show or my mission. But I have been able to, to do very well in this space. And I've spent a lot of time teaching people how to do it. So now I'm going to be teaching people how to do it in a more organized fashion. And I have a webinar coming up the second week of February. I've been speaking at lots of podcast festivals and groups about this. I did the Charlotte Podcast Festival in the fall. So get paid to podcast. I'm going to tell you. And it's not, you know, it's simple, but it's not easy, Mm. if that makes sense. But I think... I think there are ways to go about it that really can help you get organized and know how right. to do this in a way that you don't feel like you're you're not selling snake oil. You're not selling out your listeners. Let's do it ethically. Let's do it well. Let's make podcasting, frankly, worth more. I see people selling their show for these little teeny tiny sums of money. It's like, mm-hmm. guys, podcasting is worth a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. So I want to help elevate the industry as well because I don't think we're getting, you know, when I look across what people are getting paid with the CPM model, I, I'm, I think we can do better. Let's put it that and way. And you're doing host read ads, right? I am doing host read ads. I yeah, think that's, that's where it's you know, at really the way to go. You know, I would accept if it was the right client, the right way. Mm-hmm. I would definitely look at different types of commercials, but a host read ad done well is really the way to go. And it's funny with medical companies, that's who I work with mostly. You have to be very careful. It's not when I worked in talk radio, we're selling used cars and hey, come on down to this guy's place or, you know, you could get bullet points and kind of riff and have a lot of fun. I used to do, I used to work with a car company. They were not a used car company. They were wonderful Honda dealership. And I I would tell stories of my kids making a mess in the car all the time. That was my shtick. It was like, oh, we did this. We did this crazy. But with pharmaceutical and medical companies, you have to go through layers of compliance and lawyering. And I I believe I'm the first podcast that Johnson & Johnson sponsored back in 2016. Now, it was a subsidiary of them called Animus Corporation. But they signed up with me. And then they said, how do we do this? And we had to learn together. I'll give you a a sneak little look at how I do it. I write six to eight commercials. I make them sound spontaneous, but I write them in advance. I give them to the company. They have their lawyers redline it and go through it. Then they give it back to me. And so I have six to eight commercials that I can cycle through for the next couple of months. And then I write more because otherwise you're just reading a script. It might as well be a recorded commercial and not a host read ad. 
But this way I can say, oh, you know, when my son was little, we used to do this and now we can do that. And let me tell you about this product in a way that's organic. It makes sense. I'm telling a story. The company's happy because they're not going to get into legal hot water. It's really interesting. That sounds great. Is there anything else you want us to know, Stacy, about diabetes? <laughs> you know what? Yes, I will take a little bit of that if you don't mind. We talked about type 1. We talked about type 2. Very briefly, if you are an adult listening and you've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, but it's not sitting well with you, you're exercising, you've lost weight, you're doing everything your doctor tells you to do, you're eating low carb, you know, you're just not seeing the results with your A1C going down. Ask them if you could possibly have something called LADA, latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. It is an extremely common diagnosis in adults, and they think now that 30% of adults with type 1 diabetes are misdiagnosed initially with type 2, and that misdiagnosis can last up to 10 years, during which time you're not getting the treatment that you need. So if you have type 2 and it's not sitting well with you, ask your doctor about LADA, also called type 1.5. I can't tell you how many adults I've interviewed in the last few years that were misdiagnosed. And it's really important that you get the right kind of diabetes diagnosis. It's a C-peptide test. It's not complicated, but you often have to push for it and get your insurance to pay for it and all that nonsense. But it it is worth it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's very helpful. Yeah, so just so everyone knows, it's December 22nd, 2020. This will get released probably like February 2nd, February 3rd, 2021. And at the start of the call, before we actually started recording, you have something coming up, right? Yes, I do. I have a webinar the second week of February. Get paid to podcast. Yes, I'm very excited about it. It is that project where I will be teaching people how to make money in podcasting. I mean, you're working hard. Why not? And a lot of people are launching their shows or have launched as you're listening in January. So maybe it's time to start planning ahead. The webinar is free. Mm -hmm. You can find out more about it at stacysims.com. Thank you for linking up. Or just follow me on social media. And I'm sure over at diabetes-connections.com, I'll put something up on there. But for the most part, those will be separate, which is so weird. I've done this the show for so long to be branching out into something else. It feels really good and exciting. But it's also a little strange. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Stacey, and making time for us today. Oh, and, uh, my gosh. Thank you. You've been listening to Stacey Sims and Kim Shea and John Bethan. And you can catch this podcast anywhere you catch your podcasts. And please consider coming by alternativehealthtools.com and leave us an audio message or a question or feedback or just say hi. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any of them. Thank you so much. Thank you. Produced by Heard Not Seen Media, visit imaginepodcasting.com for more information.